Good morning, church family. It's wonderful to see all of you here today and to be back in the pulpit this morning after being away a couple days last week at our denomination's annual conference. Nevertheless, as for today, we'll be back in Mark chapter 14, still very much in the throes of Passion Week, and we'll be looking specifically this morning at verses 22 through 25, or when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ institutes the Lord's Supper which comes on the heels, church, as we saw two weeks ago, following Judas Iscariot going to the chief priest in verses 10 and 11 in order to betray Jesus Christ to them. And then as we also saw in verses 12 through 21, when Jesus Christ made known to his disciples during the Passover meal that one of them would indeed betray him which took place, as we see here in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, or on the Thursday of Passion Week, when Jesus Christ sent two of his disciples, those two being Peter and John, as we see in Luke chapter 22, and said to them in verses 13 through 15, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And that upon their arrival then into Jerusalem, Peter and John, they found it just as Jesus Christ had told them. Therefore, they then, verse 16, prepared the Passover, which included getting the lamb and the wine and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread and the sauce all ready to go for this elaborate Passover meal, to which once they finished, they seemingly then went back to Bethany, only for Jesus Christ then in the evening to go with his 12 disciples to Jerusalem in order to eat this aforementioned Passover meal. Since according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 5 through 8, the Passover meal needed to be eaten in Jerusalem. However, while Jesus Christ and his disciples were reclining at table and eating, Jesus Christ, he said to them in verse 18, truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. To which Jesus' disciples then, verse 19, began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And that they were saddened by this church and distressed by this church and grieved and hurt and upset and dismayed by this church to the point that they then were left asking Jesus Christ, as the NIV puts it, Surely you don't mean me. Only for Jesus Christ then to reply back to them in verse 20 by saying that it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, seemingly reinforcing or reemphasizing here his point from verse 18, that being that the betrayer is one who is in a very close relationship with him. Only to then go on to say in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In essence, that this whole 
betrayal thing by Judas Iscariot of Jesus Christ, that it did not catch our God off guard here, church, or take our God by surprise here, church, or leave our God unprepared, unaware, vulnerable, or saying, oh no, what do I do now here, church, but that instead this whole betrayal thing by Judas Iscariot, that it was all part of our God's divine and sovereign plan for Jesus Christ here. And yet despite all of that, that Judas Iscariot would still be held accountable for and be responsible for this wicked and heinous act against Jesus Christ. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Jesus Christ truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Jesus Christ truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. And if you're joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you, as our gift to you this morning. And to please also then open that brand new Bible of yours up at this time to page 851, and to join us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, our text this morning, church, comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25, where John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we have a weighty text before us this morning. And there are a lot of things we will hear this morning, Lord, that we have heard many of times. But Father, I pray you open our eyes, you open our ears, and you soften our hearts to allow these truths to penetrate us more than ever before. Let these truths call us to truly remember the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for many, the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out and which inaugurated and established the new covenant, securing the forgiveness of sin 
Father, let us long for the day when we will be in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in perfect fellowship with him, in his Father's kingdom, dining with him, in fellowship, in perfect communion with him at the glorious messianic banquet. Father, open our eyes to see the truths of your word this morning again, like never before. And if there are any dear ones that are here today that don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, Father, I pray that today be the day and that this text be the one that opens their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Father, I pray that you help my lisping and my stammering tongue this morning. Lord, that I may decrease and that your son Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of the word, that he increases in him alone. Father, we want you and you to be glorified this morning. So I pray that all that we do today in this wonderful worship servants, as the saints have gathered together this morning, that you, Father God, be glorified. Do this wonderful work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one. Christian Jesus Christ gave his body up as a sacrifice for your sins. Christian Jesus Christ gave his body up as a sacrifice for your sins. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. So keep in mind the context here, church. As Jesus Christ and his disciples at this time are in the midst of eating the Passover meal, or the meal that's celebrated, or commemorated when the people of Israel's firstborn were spared or passed over, if you will, due to the blood of the slaughtered Passover lamb, which was put on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of their houses, as opposed to the Egyptians who had their firstborn, Exodus chapter 12, all struck down. And it was a meal, as numerous commentators pointed out, but as Robert Stein predominantly explains here, was structured around four cups of wine. And thus, in short, after initial blessing was said at the beginning of the Passover meal, the first cup of wine then, church, would be consumed. Then after that took place, eventually, the youngest child or guest at the meal would ask, why is this night different from other nights, to which the father or the host then would share the Exodus story and explain at that time the meaning of the Passover lamb, which again symbolized the blood of the sacrificed lamb, which was put on the aforementioned door frames of the houses of the people of Israel in order to protect them from the angel of death, and the meaning of the unleavened bread which symbolized Israel coming out of the land of Egypt in haste, and even the meaning of the bitter herbs, which symbolized how the Egyptians made the lives of the people of Israel bitter during their captivity. Only then, after all that took place, would the second cup of wine be consumed. Then the father, or the host church, would bless the bread, 
and break it and give it to his guest, and the main meal would be eaten, which included the unleavened bread, the roasted lamb, and of course, the third cup of wine, which was followed by, at about midnight, mind you, the singing of the Hallel Psalms, probably Psalms 116 through 118, and then after consuming the fourth and final cup of wine, the meal then, church, would be over. And it's in the midst of this very elaborate and deeply ceremonial meal, likely between the aforementioned second and third cup of wine, when Jesus Christ, as the host, verse 22, takes the bread, and after blessing it, likely saying here the appropriate Passover blessing, which was, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth, He, Jesus Christ, then breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples and says in verse 22, take, this is my body. Or as Matthew 26, 26 puts it, take, eat, this is my body. Or as Luke 22, 19 puts it, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And although the bread here, church, certainly points to the broken body and the death of Jesus Christ, I realize that it's still a fair question to ask, for what exactly did Jesus Christ mean here in verse 22 when he said, this is my body? And what Jesus Christ did not mean here, church, is that this bread somehow in some way changed at this time and became his actual body, which is what the Roman Catholic Church believes takes place during their Catholic Mass and that the bread and the wine, that they actually become the substance of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ as affirmed by their doctrine of transubstantiation. And although there is a lot of debate on this topic, church, in terms of what exactly Jesus Christ meant in verse 22 when he said, this is my body, I tend to side with the reformer John Calvin and with what is considered the predominant reform view which is as Jonathan Griffiths explains, that at the Lord's table, a physical change to the bread and wine does not take place, but nor is the Lord's Supper merely just a bare memorial, but that instead, that Jesus Christ is present spiritually in a special way, but not physically present. And that there is true spiritual communion which takes place between the Lord and his church during the Lord's Supper. And thus the word is here in verse 22 retains a symbolic and not a literal meaning, but at the same time there is still true sharing in Christ that does take place during the Lord's Supper. Or as the late R.C. Sproul clarifies it, for if we equate the bread and the wine with the physical body of Jesus Christ, We have Christological problems that will simply not go away. And Calvin, he understood here that Jesus Christ was not saying that the elements, the bread and the wine, are just his physical person, but that they are his person. And thus there is a reality in the celebration of the Lord's Supper beyond just a memorial. And yes, Jesus Christ in his humanity is in heaven, but in his deity he is not restricted by time and place. So we can have full assurance then that when we come to the Lord's table, that that we come into his real presence, for he is there. 
and that he invites us into intimacy and invites us to feed on him, to be nurtured by him, to be strengthened by him as well. And thus, in light of all that, Franklin Graham, he shared this story about a man by the name of Louis Zamperini, an Olympic athlete who was enlisted in World War II in order to fight in the Pacific against the Japanese. However, Louis' plane went down in the ocean where he was lost at sea for 47 days. And after dehydration, hunger, shark attacks, and storms had ravaged him, Louis one day promised to serve God always if God would spare his life. And Louis' life was indeed spared, however, not by the rescue of U.S. forces, but instead was found by the Imperial Navy of Japan. And he was subsequently in prison then in Japanese labor camps where he suffered unbearable torture at the hands of his captors until the war was over. However, upon his rescue and release, he was hailed as a war hero. And for a time, he then enjoyed the celebrity of heroism, hobnobbing with Hollywood's elites, and even met and married a beautiful woman during that time by the name of Cynthia Applewhite. But when the glitz and glamour all faded, reality set in, and reoccurring nightmares of war and of his tur- torture tormented him, causing Louis to turn to alcohol, which ultimately led to his wife believing that she had no other choice but to divorce him. However, in September of 1949, Billy Graham was running an evangelistic crusade in Los Angeles. And Louis' wife attended the crusade and immediately gave her life to Jesus Christ. And her first act as a believer was to inform Louis that she had changed and that she would not divorce him. And she earnestly asked Louis to attend the crusade with her, to which Louis agreed to do. And it was during this crusade Louis gave his life to Jesus Christ. And to summarize Franklin Graham here, for he concluded with this, For the man who had endured horrific physical and mental abuse and emerged unbroken from the ravages of war simply could not overcome his own sinful self. And thus, until we know our own sin and realize our own brokenness, we cannot be saved from our sins by the one Jesus Christ who ultimately was broken for us and who said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And thus, as you take the bread here this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, at the Lord's table, please, please, please make sure to recognize at that time and to recall at that time, and to remember at that time that Jesus' body was broken and wounded and crushed and killed, not as a payment for his own sins, Christian, but instead as a payment for your sins, Christian, and your sins, Christian, and your sins, and your sins, and your sins, and my sins, and for each and every one of the elect sins, past, 
present, and future, and that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions, Christian, and was crushed for our iniquities, and that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, also that through his wounds we could be eternally healed. For reflect on, recall, dwell on, and never forget as you come to the Lord's table this morning, Christian, that your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ willingly and humbly and sacrificially gave his sinless and righteous and perfect body up for you and for many. Which brings us to point number two. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verses 23 and 24. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So following Jesus Christ, taking the bread during the Passover meal, and blessing it and breaking it, and giving it to his disciples and saying, Take, this is my body. Jesus Christ then, as we go on to see in verse 23, takes the cup, which again was likely the third cup of wine of the Passover meal, which was to be consumed once the main meal was eaten. And consequently then, after giving thanks... Again, likely saying the appropriate Passover blessing here, which was, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. He, Jesus Christ, then, verse 23, gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And that Jesus Christ likely passed out here a common cup of wine for all of his disciples to drink from. Only to then say to them, as we go on to see in verse 24, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The cup here, church, pointing to the shed blood and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Which again, when Jesus Christ says in verse 24, this is my blood, for he does not mean here, church, that the wine actually changed at this time into the actual blood of Jesus Christ. But that instead, as previously mentioned, the word is here in verse 24 has a symbolic and not literal meaning. And that at the Lord's table, then Jesus Christ is present spiritually in a special way, but not that of physically. Nevertheless, when Jesus Christ says here in verse 24 that this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, although there certainly seems to be an allusion here, church, to Exodus chapter 24 verse 8, which reads, And Moses took blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the, la- Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. For that is not the only Old Testament text here that seems to be alluded to. And I say that because Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, also seems to be alluded to or evoked here, if you will, as well. Which reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And thus, as Mark Strauss explains it, for what Jesus Christ was essentially doing here was creating a new Passover, which will establish the new covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31. And that just as the covenant at Mount Sinai was established through the blood of the sacrificed animals, as we just read about in Exodus 24 verse 8, so the new covenant then will be established through Jesus' own blood and will bring about true forgiveness of sins and authentic knowledge of God. And this blood of the covenant, church, it will be poured out, verse 24, for many. Again, alluding to or evoking here yet another Old Testament text. That text being Isaiah 53, verse 12, which speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord pouring his soul out to death and being numbered with the transgressors and bearing the sins of many and making intercession for the transgressors. And thus, big picture here, church. And what I want you all to grasp and to realize and to understand here this morning is that it was the blood of the Lamb Jesus Christ poured out on that old rugged cross at Calvary that inaugurated and established the new covenant so that forgiveness of sins, as one scholar puts it, could ultimately be secured, and that it was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who entered once and for all into the holy places, but not by the means of the blood of goats or calves, but instead by the means of his own blood, and in doing so, Christ secured for us that of eternal redemption, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. And thus, if you truly want to know, Christian, what can wash away your sins, then listen very closely to the words penned by the late Robert Lowry in 1876, who wrote that it's nothing but the blood of Jesus, and that what can make you whole again, that it's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, for no other fount I know, for it's nothing but the blood of Jesus, and that there is no sacrifice that you can make, no lamb that you can kill, nor any amount of money that you can give, Christian, that can atone for your very sins, since the atonement for sin, the forgiveness of sin, and the redemption from sin was secured, procured, and accomplished once and for all time for you, for for me and for each and every one of the elect, only by the precious and redeeming blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we begin to close this morning, church, I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who was here first and to share with you at this time, non-Christian, how exactly this Jesus Christ once 
and for all time secured and procured and accomplished redemption and eternal salvation and the forgiveness of sins for all those who place their trust in him. And he did it, non-Christian, by literally coming into this world as truly God and as truly man and initially living for us the life that we could never live and that the life that Jesus Christ lived while he lived and dwelt among us was a life, non-Christian, that was holy and righteous and just and good, completely free from any kind of wickedness or transgression, iniquity or sin meaning that Jesus Christ, non-Christian, fulfilled the law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely and without any kind of offense, all for the very children of God. However, merely keeping the law of God, all for the very children of God, for that in and of itself was not enough to save the children of God from their very sins. And I say that because the wage of our sin or the cost of our sin, as Romans 6.23 puts it, is that of death. And thus because of that, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, for he then took our sins upon himself and willingly then gave himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf by being broken and crucified, killed and crushed on a cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned. And in doing so, he, Jesus Christ, then satisfied the justice of our holy God and appeased then, non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God all toward his sinful children as well. And thus being that the justice and the wrath of God was satisfied. And furthermore, being that Jesus Christ, this sinless Son of God, never ever sinned. Well, then three days later, non-Christian, Jesus Christ, whose sin and death then had absolutely no power over or claim over, for he, Jesus Christ then, he rose from the dead and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his righteousness, in his perfect life, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, for as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so in light of verse 25 which reads, and truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And again, keep the context in mind here, church, and that we are in the midst of the Passover meal and with the fourth and final cup of wine now on deck, otherwise known as the cup of consummation, Jesus Christ, he apparently here does not consume this cup of wine, but instead says, as we see in verse 25, 
I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And what I want you all to see here and to realize here in the text this morning is that although Jesus Christ knows at this time that his body would be broken and that his blood would be poured out, and that he would indeed be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of many, that he still says here, and notes here, and promises here, that he will one day drink from the fruit of the vine, and he's going to drink it new in the kingdom of God. And that, as Mark Lane explains it, that although Jesus Christ dedicated himself with a relentless will to accept the bitter cup of wrath, offered to him by his Father God, for there is still clear anticipation here of the messianic banquet when the Passover fellowship with his followers followers will one day be renewed in the kingdom of God. And thus Jesus Christ clearly affirmed here in his vindication that there would be an establishment of uninterrupted fellowship between a redeemed community and its Redeemer through the experience of salvation via the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that, brother Christian, sister Christian, is the good news that I want all of us to cling to this morning. That although Jesus Christ did indeed die, and that his body was broken, and his blood was poured out, and he gave his life up as a ransom for many, for that in and of itself was not how this story ultimately ended. And I say that because three days later, this Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead just like he said he would in Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 9, and again in Mark chapter 10, and that he, Jesus Christ, will one day have fellowship with his redeemed people at his messianic banquet in his father's kingdom. A banquet church is described by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 8 that the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For I am often lovingly reminded, church, by my brother Matt Furman, that when we take communion, we need to celebrate more. Because although communion is a time when we publicly get to testify our faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another, and it's a time when we are to remember and to recall and to reflect on the substitutionary atonement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that it also needs to be a time when we celebrate church and our hopeful church and our cheerful and joyful and ecstatic and elated church due to the fact that all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and have been forgiven and saved and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb himself, Jesus Christ, that they will all one day fellowship in perfect communion with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. And thus, as you take communion this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, please, 
please, please do not allow your mind to begin to drift at that time or to begin to wonder at that time about what you are going to eat when you get home today or about what you are going to watch on the TV today, or about what chores you still have to do today, what things you still have to accomplish today, what online purchases you still want to make today, or how long that nap of yours is ultimately going to be today. But instead, let your mind dwell on and let your heart jump for joy today, Christian, over the fact that because of the sacrificial and atoning and redeeming work of Jesus Christ on that cross at Calvary, where as his body was crushed for you and his blood was poured out for you, that you then, Christian, by grace, through faith in this Jesus Christ, have been redeemed, forgiven, saved, and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself, who will one day then, Christian, fellowship with you and commune with you and celebrate with you at the messianic banquet in his Father's kingdom. Thus, it is my prayer that we as a church body, especially now as we take communion each and every week, that our observance of the Lord's Supper never becomes dull or boring or monotonous or mundane, but that we remember each and every week that Jesus' body was put to death, not because of his own iniquities or wickedness or transgression or sins, but instead because of our sins. And that the blood of Jesus Christ, which was poured out on that old rugged cross at Calvary, that it inaugurated and established the new covenant, securing eternal salvation and the forgiveness of sins for all those who place their trust in him. And thus, let us cling to these truths, Father, and remember these truths, recall these truths, and never, ever, ever become bored by these truths, but instead to let these truths cause us to look ahead with great, great joy to the day when we as the redeemed can fellowship and commune and celebrate with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at the messianic banquet in his Father's kingdom. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are in awe of the body broken and the blood poured out of your Son, Jesus Christ, to secure salvation for us, to secure atonement for us, to secure redemption for us, to secure the forgiveness of sins for us. And yet we are reminded each and every week when we come to your table of this wonderful sacrifice that your Son made, And that because of the grace you have given us to have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are no longer enemies of the Most High God, but that we now can dwell in his presence. And we can look forward to the day when we will dwell eternally in his presence with new glorified bodies, fit to be in his presence, fellowshipping, in communion with and celebrating with the King Jesus Christ in his Father's kingdom. Father, let us never become bored by communion, become impatient waiting for the elements to be distributed, 
But let us realize that because of your grace and your Son, Jesus Christ, that our salvation is secure and that we can dwell now and forevermore in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.